You may be seated. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8. I don't remember a whole lot from fifth grade, but I do remember the name Patrick Henry. For a speech meet, we all had to choose a famous historical address and memorize it and deliver it in front of the class. And I did not choose Patrick Henry's famous speech, but I remember his iconic closing line, give me liberty or give me death. As a a quick aside, I heard a funny story about a middle schooler who was asked to give that speech at a PTA meeting. And so he went to the PTA meeting and he's trembling, nervous, and he stands up in front of all the parents and he did great. He delivered the whole speech, but it all went wrong at the end when he got to that last line and he said, give me puberty or give me death. (laughs) Must have been on his mind and it slipped, slipped out. And I don't think I'm alone. Many of us were familiar with that iconic line from Patrick Henry's speech. There's a reason why it sticks in our collective consciousness. And the reason is it encapsulates one of the most entrenched values that we hold in our country, the value of freedom. America was founded on the deep belief in the importance of freedom. It's in our national anthem. We live in the land of the free, the home of the brave. A number of surveys that I looked at, some recent, some from 50 years ago, they all show that according to most Americans, the number one, the highest value in our country is freedom. But the Bible does not share that perspective. Let me be more specific. The Bible does value freedom. Paul says in Galatians 5, it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. But the Bible does not share our modern definition of freedom. You know, Tim Keller, summarizing work done by Patrick Deneen and others, he, he says that all cultures have believed in, for the most part, believed in and valued freedom. The Greeks, the Romans, Jews. But modern society has changed the classic understanding of freedom. The classic understanding of freedom is the freedom to do what you ought to do. But now what's happened is in our modern age, we have disembedded the individual from the transcendent and from the community. So the the modern view of freedom is There is no transcendent higher authority. There is no divine revelation that you need to submit your life to. There's there's nothing out there. Everything can be explained by natural reason. There's nothing out there that should limit your autonomy in any way. And we've also separated the individual from the community. And we, we basically approach freedom like you do you and If your community, even if your family, if they're not meeting your needs, well, then you distance yourself from them and find a new one. The the modern conception of freedom is personal autonomy above all else. And that worldview clashes with the Bible in a major, not a minor way. 
Paul is going to spend three chapters in 1 Corinthians addressing this subject. And essentially, he's answering the question, what is freedom? And what is it for? And if we have ears to hear today and over the next few weeks, it is going to mess with us. Because every age has its idols. And what we're talking about is one of ours. Our view of and our approach to personal freedom. You know, chapters six and seven, Paul talks about sexuality and marriage, and, and it's so countercultural. But when we get to chapters eight through ten about freedom, it is just as countercultural. So may we have ears to hear. Let's dive in at verse one, chapter eight. This is what Paul writes. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. I doubt anyone woke up thinking about that this morning. But this section of, of, of 1 Corinthians, Paul, he's answering different questions that the Corinthians have had. And, and so here he shifts to answering questions about food sacrificed to idols. But the real issue is not food or idols. It's something deeper, as we'll see. Now, a, a little context. In the first century, so much of pagan worship, which was prevalent, especially in a city like Corinth, so much of it involved animal sacrifice to the gods. You would bring an animal to the temple, and a priest or priestess would facilitate the killing of that animal, the burning of certain parts of the animal. And the leftovers from that sacrifice were handled in three ways. One, they were eaten at the temple as part of a meal in worship to that God that you had sacrificed to. Two, you would take a portion of the food home with you, or the priest would. And then three, there's part of it that would get sold in the marketplace. And the basic question the Corinthians are asking, Paul, is can we eat it? Can we eat it, Paul? And we know from chapter one, verse 10, this was a divided church, and they were divided on this issue. And they needed clarity. And this is not a minor thing. This was a big deal. I mean, some speculate because of how widespread pagan worship was, there were no other meat options. And with famines happening in Greece at this time, this was not a casual inquiry. There's limited options for food. Hunger is a daily reality for many people, this was a front burner issue. And Paul, he's going to answer their question, but as he normally does, first, he's going to address the problem underneath the problem. And this is what he says. We know, we know that we all possess knowledge. And this is likely a saying that the Corinthians had. We all possess knowledge. This might refer to knowledge about Idols or general knowledge, it may refer to spiritual knowledge revealed by the Spirit. But either way, we, we know the Corinthians, they fancied themselves knowledgeable. And Paul is speaking to that. He says, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Puffs up is the Greek word fusio. It literally means to inflate something like a balloon. The, the word builds up is oikodomeo, and it originally meant to build a house. It's, it's the same word that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5.11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up. You see, pride puffs us up, and it's just for ourselves, is what he's saying, knowledge, pride. But, but building is for other people. 
Now, is knowledge bad? Is that what he's saying? No, knowledge is not bad, but it is not enough. Knowing a lot, knowing spiritual content does not make you mature. Think about Solomon in the Old Testament. Think about the Pharisees in the New Testament. I mean, they knew more Bible than any of us ever will. But they were some of the most unloving people. And so Paul, he's driving right at the fact that there can be a major gap between what we know and our love. And he says it in an even stronger way in 1 Corinthians 13. Many of you, you know this verse. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Think about that for a minute. If you literally know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And that word for nothing in the Greek, it means nothing. I'm pretty sure. I I didn't look it up. But what a statement he's making. I mean, think about this. I am nothing. Now, does this mean that we should not seek knowledge? No, we do seek knowledge, but we remember that the goal is not just to accumulate information. And Paul, he gets at the real reason for learning in 1 Timothy 1.5. This is such an important verse for anybody who values learning spiritually. Now, the goal of our instruction, Paul says, is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The goal of biblical instruction is love. We tend to rate the health of our Christianity by what we know. The Bible says a much better indicator of your health, of your maturity, is how you love. So here's the warning out of this first part of the chapter for all of us, this is for all of us today, here's the warning. Do not let learning be more important than loving. For all of you who who value insight, do not let learning be more important than loving. We have more access today to resources, biblical resources than ever. I mean, some of the mothers and fathers of the faith, some of the saints of ancient times, I mean, they would just trip over themselves listening to how much we can consume. I mean, we have the Bible on every device But all of of that access to to knowledge, it's a good thing, but it's a dangerous thing. Why? Because knowledge puffs up. You can know all there is to know about the Bible and theology and be unkind, impatient, emotionally unavailable. So for all of us today, the warrant, do not let Learning be more important than loving. And I need this too. All of us do. Because I will teach a sermon from God's word and people will come up and say, hey, great job. That was helpful. And I appreciate that. But nobody to this point is coming up to me and saying, hey, the way that you sacrificed your time to get on the the floor and play with your kids, the way that you did the dishes was awesome. Great job. And nobody is doing that for you either. So I'm not unique in that way. But my point is, all of us, we have to reorient ourselves constantly to what the Bible values. And what matters most to God, it's not your learning. It's your loving. And so with that 
foundation, Paul, he goes on and he critiques their view of knowledge. He says this in verse two, those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know. It's fascinating. True knowledge does not lead to pride about what you do know, but humility about what you don't know. And this is why the wisest people among us, I'm looking at a few in the room that I value their wisdom and insight, the wisest people among us are not afraid to say, I don't know. They're not threatened by that. And he goes on and he he says, but whoever loves God is known by God. Paul, he says, love is the actual indicator of true knowledge, but notice he flips it. It's not about knowing God, but being known by God. Now, doesn't God know everybody? I mean, he made us. Well, God does know everybody. But personally, relationally, experientially, he does not. And what Paul is saying is that love is the marker, it's the indicator that we are known by God, that God is at work in our lives. And so with that groundwork, he comes back to his question. Verse four, he says, so then, about eating food sacrificed to idols. Now, before we go any further, I wanna provide an, an additional layer of context which will help us as we unpack this text. Because what's happening in Corinth is unique. If you know your Bible, you might be thinking, is this similar to what's going on in Romans, at the end of Romans, about eating meat? No, this is different. Is this similar to what's happening in Acts and Galatians when it comes to Jewish dietary laws? No, this is different. And so let me give you an example of what's happening. You, you imagine it, you live in Corinth in the first century and you're a believer. You've trusted in Jesus and you get invited to go to an event. Let's just say it's a wedding. Friend of yours, their daughter's getting married, you're invited, so you go to the wedding and at the reception they're serving meat. They're coming around, it's like a Brazilian steakhouse and they got, you know, they got lamb and beef and chicken and shrimp, and they're just passing it all out. And you know that it's meat sacrificed to idols. You know this, because almost all the meat in Corinth is. But internally, you you think, you know what, I've worked through this. I realize that there's only one God. There's one God. And that God, he cares more about the heart. And if I receive this with gratitude to God, I am I have a pure conscience. There's nothing in my heart. I don't believe that I'm worshiping a false God by eating this. God is my God. And I have freedom, and so I'm gonna eat this meat. And you're about to take your first bite. And then someone comes up to you, and they say, hey, and it's somebody from your church. And they say, hey, do you know where that meat came from? That was sacrificed to an idol. You can't eat that. And you say, well, hey, sit down for a second. Let me explain this to you. I've worked through this, and there's only one God. He cares about the heart. My heart is pure, so I can eat this, and I'm gonna. I mean, it smells so good. Do you smell this? And so you take a bite, and your, your, your friend from your church, he's watching you, and he thinks, you know what? If it's okay for you, it's okay for me too. And so then he, he, he carves up his steak, his filet mignon, and he takes a bite. But when he takes a bite, his countenance changes. Something has happened. His face falls, and he feels an immediate wave of guilt. See, he's been formed by years of pagan worship. 
and he feels distant from God. He feels like he has dishonored God. And he can't enjoy the rest of the night, and he leaves feeling shame. You see, that's what's happening in Corinth. And so again, the question that comes out of it is, Paul, can we eat it? And, and he is going to address what's happening theologically and practically, and both are so important. Look at this. He says this. We know that an idol is nothing at all in the world, and that there is no God but one. And here he's quoting Deuteronomy 6.4, the Shema. This was the most memorized part of the Old Testament, of the Hebrew Bible, if you lived in Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. This is what he's referencing. He says, for even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us... There is but one God, the Father, from whom all things came and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things came and through whom we live. He's not saying that there are no other gods, that there are no other spiritual beings. He says in verse 5, indeed, there are many. And in chapter 10, he's going to tell the Corinthians, when you eat in a pagan temple... At the table, you're eating at the table of demons. So he's not saying there are no other spiritual beings. His point here is that compared to Yahweh, the God of Israel, all other gods are inferior. And so he says, for us, and for us is in the emphatic position in Greek. He says, for us, there's only one God. That contrary to the idolatrous culture that is so prevalent around you, for Christians, he's saying, we are essentially monotheistic. There's only one God. No one can hold a candle to Yahweh. But, he says in verse 7, not everyone possesses this knowledge. Some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, They think of it as having been sacrificed to a God, and since their conscience is weak, it is defiled. Now, defiled here, it means excluded from the presence of God. And that's how they feel. They feel internally when they eat something sacrificed to an idol, they feel excluded from God's presence. They're not at a place where they can look at it and say, this is just a piece of meat, this is just a good steak. Now, for them... They can't eat it without feeling guilt. Now he goes back and he says something theologically to to make sure we understand. Verse 8, but food does not bring us near to God. We are no worse if we do not eat and no better if we do. He's saying what a person eats physically is neutral spiritually. God cares about the heart, and he cares about the conscience, obviously, too, but the food itself doesn't matter. And so he's essentially saying, you have freedom, but his concern is more practical than theologically, than, than theological, and this is his main concern. Look at verse 9. He says this, be careful. This is the one command in this whole chapter. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Take great care. 
that the exercise of your rights, in this case, being able to eat food sacrificed to idols does not become a barrier to someone else in their relationship with God. And that's what a stumbling block means. And this is important. The stumbling block here in this text, it's not offending people. Paul is not saying, hey, don't offend Christians ever. That'd be impossible for one, but that's not what he's saying. And he's certainly not saying that that we ought to tiptoe around legalistic believers who try to drag us into a system of do's and don'ts. Paul has really strong words against people who do that. What he is talking about here is protecting the tender conscience of a weaker believer. Look at the next verse. He says, For if someone with a weak conscience sees you with all your knowledge, eating in an idol's temple, won't that person be emboldened to eat what is sacrificed to idols? He's saying, you feel free And you are, but you are causing a believer to act in a way that violates their conscience. And for them, it is sin. And this is so serious to Paul. that that Look at the next verse. He says, so this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge. And this is such a strong word. It means to ruin not talking about you ruin their salvation, but their experience, their relational closeness with God, their Christian life to a degree can be ruined. It's the opposite of building up. See, what Paul would say is, it's not give me liberty or give me death. He would say, liberty without love leads to death. And he amps it up further in the next verse, verse 12. When you sin against them in this way, wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. As if it wasn't enough to destroy them spiritually. Paul says, you sin against Christ himself. Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother or sister to fall into sin, again, that's the issue, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause them to fall. This is emphatic. This is, I will never, ever, ever, ever eat meat again. Because this is so serious. Now, let me pull out of this text three principles about freedom theologically that can help us practically. Number number one, what we see in this passage is we have great freedom in Christ. We have great freedom And as one commentator says, it's not about the cleanness of the food, it's about the cleanness of the heart. You have great freedom, and you can't do anything you want. You can't say, you know what, I'm free, and you're getting on my nerves, so I'm going to murder you, because I want to. This is why scripture is important. You can't do whatever you want, but within the principles of Christian living in the New Testament, within that, there is great freedom, It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. And the second point is freedom grows as understanding grows. As as we understand more spiritually, just like the Corinthians, the ones who are weak in their conscience, as we understand more, we grow in our experience of freedom. And some of you, this is your story because you came to Christ, but you still were living in bondage religiously. You thought God was just looking down on you and, and, and writing on a list all the bad things you did. 
And you just have no freedom. And, and over time, as you grow, you realize, no, I have freedom. I'm free. And usually, by the way, when, when people project onto others rules and a system of do's and don'ts, it's usually because they are not free. They don't feel free. And so I'm certainly not gonna let you be free. A lot of times that's happening subconsciously. But here's the kicker, the third point. And, and this is what the strong weren't getting in Corinthians. And this is what we so often miss. You know, the weak, that group, he's not telling either group what they wanna hear. First of all, he calls the weak, weak. He says, you're weak. But he is telling them, you're actually free. And you need to grow in your understanding. But to the strong, this is what he says, principle three, freedom must be surrendered for the sake of love. Freedom, according to 1 Corinthians 8, this is so important, freedom is not about personal autonomy, but community responsibility. You see, they're saying to Paul, can I eat? Can I eat this? And he is saying, in essence, you're asking the wrong question. It's not, can I eat this? It's, should I eat this? It's not, do I have the right to eat this? What are my rights? No, he's saying that the right question is, what rights do I keep instead of surrendering them in love? And this is so countercultural. Again, the Bible's posture when it comes to rights, it is so 180 degrees different than many of us. I mean, our approach to rights is to fight for them. And I'm not talking about our right to worship God, our right to exist and not be harmed by others. I'm talking about our personal freedoms, personal rights. We fight for those. And this text is saying, no, sacrifice those. We try to protect our freedoms. And this is saying, no, surrender those in love. And this is what Jesus did. Listen, for anyone who's, who's struggling with this and you're wrestling through this, is this really what scripture is asking us to do? This is what Jesus did. I mean, talk about rights. Jesus was God. He had the right to be received well, not born in a trough. Jesus had the right to be treated with respect, not despised and rejected. Jesus had the right to a fair trial. He had the right to not have to suffer and die for someone else's sin. But he surrendered all of those rights. He surrendered them in love. How can we, we who claim to follow Christ, how can we take any other posture? So how do we apply this practically? Let me give you three questions that, that help us discern when it comes to our decision-making around freedom. How do we use our freedom? Here's three questions. Number one, am I free in Christ to do this? Am I free in Christ to do this? This is a, a theological question, okay, in my mind. Has God in his word given me freedom? And the second question is, will the use of my freedom honor my own conscience? So am I free in Christ? And then will the use of my freedom honor my own conscience? This is a heart question. Can I use freedom in this area without violating my spirit-shaped conscience. Again, my conscience that is growing in its understanding. And then number three, 
The third question, will the use of my freedom promote the well-being of other people? This is the question that the Corinthians were not asking, and it is so essential for them, for us. Will the use of my freedom in this way, will it lead to the flourishing of other people? Let me just give you a couple tangible examples. When I was growing up, I I had a positive church experience overall. It's kind of flavored with some fundamentalism. Some of you can relate to that. But I remember going on a mission trip to Mexico, Reynosa, Mexico, middle school, and being told while I was there by our youth pastor, hey, all of you should get rid of your non-Christian music, all of your secular CDs. You should throw them out. If you don't know what a CD is, ask your parents. You, You should know. And I remember feeling convicted, and I thought, yes, I, I want to honor Jesus, and so I threw him away. And now, I just got to tell you, I listen to secular music now. I do. Because I think God's word absolutely permits it. My own conscience does not bother me. And the third question, does it lead to well-being? I would say, yes, there's lots of great music out there. <laughs> so three thumbs up, another example. About eight years ago, I led a trip to Bolivia with some staff from Pine Cove to train some local leaders in Christian camping. And we put on two different camps, youth camps, in Bolivia. And about day two of the first camp, I realized something was wrong because the body language of the national staff that were there, it just shifted. It really felt like we had done something to offend them. And so we asked questions and we realized, oh, yikes, we really did offend them. And we offended them by dancing and I'm not gonna dance for you now to give you an example, what we were doing. But, but apparently, you know, camp, you play live music and you dance, and we had offended them because many of their leaders, they came from a background where it was a sin to dance. And so in that moment, we surrendered our freedom to do that. It was not a hard decision. We said, we will give it up. And, and, and the reason why, again, you gotta think about this, it's not just that we were offending them, if we would have persisted and said, no, we're free, we can, we can dance, we would have hindered the progress of the gospel, our ministry partnership, and we would have potentially caused some of them, students, leaders, to act in a way that violated their own conscience. A modern example might be drinking. Are you free biblically to drink? yes. The Bible condemns drunkenness, not drinking. Jesus turned water into wine and he drank it, right? There's a verse in Timothy that says, Paul says to Timothy, drink a little wine for your stomach. Some of you might love that verse. That might be a verse that you you really like. Will drinking violate your own conscience? For some of you, yes. For many of you, no. The third question, will the use of your freedom in this area, promote the well-being of other people? And the answer, the messy answer, and this is why fundamentalism does not work, because the Bible and our lives are way too nuanced for just black and white everything. The answer is, it depends. Will the use of your freedom promote well-being? It's your parents' 50th wedding anniversary. You're invited. Absolutely, it promotes the well-being of people there to raise a glass and say, hey, way to go, 50 years. You're a mentor to somebody who's recovering from an addiction to alcohol, and you say, hey, buddy, let's go to a bar. You are free to do that. Your own conscience doesn't bother you, but you 
are not loving him. And you are putting him in a position to violate his own conscience in sin. So for you, let me just be clear today, you are free to hang out with whoever you wanna hang out with, go wherever you wanna go, put any opinion you have on social media, you're free. But there's a sense in which, for many of us, we're asking the wrong question. Because your freedom is not about personal autonomy. Not according to this chapter, it is about community responsibility. Your freedom does not exist just for you, but for other people. And we learn that from Jesus. That's where we learn it. And so if you have to sum up what this text is saying today, when it comes to your freedom, this is what the text is saying. When it comes to your freedom, it's not about you. It's not about you. And where in your life do you need to hear that? Where in your life, what part of your life do you want what you want when you want, where you want it because it's what you want? And you feel entitled to get your way. It's not about you. And so as, me too, as we wrestle with this text, we gotta come back again and again to let the Bible define and shape how we view freedom. It's not about you. It's about something bigger than you. Now, back to fifth grade. I did not pick to do a speech from Patrick Henry. But you know who I picked to learn a speech from? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I wish I could remember all of it. I can't. But I want to leave us with a quote from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. that sums up, I think, what Paul is saying to the Corinthians and what God is saying to us through this text. And this is what... He says, he says, we have flown the air like birds and swum the sea like fishes, but have yet to learn the simple act of walking the earth like brothers. We, you individually, you've flown, you've swam. You can do incredible things with your freedom. You can do whatever you want. Live however you want to live. But for many of us, we, ha- we have not yet learned to walk the earth like brothers and sisters as part of a family. Your freedom is not just for you. And if there is anyone, if there is anyone who, who leverages and lays down their freedom and rights for other people, it should be us. It should be Christians. So what does that look like in your life? It's not about you. And our Lord and Savior was killed on a criminal's cross. And the more we let that sink in, again, this is gonna challenge us to follow his example and to walk the earth like brothers and sisters. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you um, for a passage that challenges, at least for me, much of the way that I think. And I, I pray that Lord, for all of us today, we would realize we are a part of something way bigger than ourselves. And not only when we submit to you, God, and to your desires for us, Lord, not only is that better for other people, it's better for us. There is so much joy 
in living with your eyes on the, the well-being of other people. And so, God, help us to grow, all of us, in that area. Help us, by your Spirit, to be more kind and patient and selfless and sacrificial. We thank you for Jesus who gave everything so that we could know you and so that we could be part of a family. We pray all this in his name. Amen.